Hello, and welcome back to How To Be Happy, a podcast where we explore all the ways that we can live a happier life. Each week, we're talking to happiness experts, celebrities, and ordinary people to uncover their secrets to living a good life. My name is Kate DeBrito. I'm your host and guide on this journey into happiness. Let's begin. Gregory Smith has led an extraordinary life, but it wasn't always a happy one. He grew up in a dysfunctional family and in institutional care where he suffered years of trauma. He later spent time in prison and became an alcoholic and a drug user. He was homeless and for years lived as a recluse in the rainforest, cut off from all of society. When he finally stumbled out of the rainforest in the year 2000, he was in his mid-40s and close to death. But it was around this time that he had an epiphany one that led to an extraordinary life turnaround. From that moment on, he never touched alcohol, drugs or tobacco again. He was determined to turn a wretched life into one worth living. And so he undertook an incredible personal reconstruction. Today, he has a PhD to his name and a loving family by his side. He's overcome homelessness and despair to become one of society's great teachers. But while his life turnaround is extraordinary, what interests me most is the innate wisdom that guided Gregory along his resurrection. He's written a new book, his second, called Better Than Happiness, The True Antidote to Discontent. And on the podcast, we talk about the principles of happiness that allowed him to change from one of life's most dispossessed to a contented man. Gregory, it's great to have you on the podcast. How are you? Yeah, I'm well, Kate. Thanks for inviting me. I hope we don't come to blows today. I don't think we will, but uh, you're on a podcast, How to Be Happy, but you've written a book which is called Better Than Happiness, The True Antidote to Discontent. It's probably a big question to start off and we'll let people know a little bit about your backstory in a minute, but if there was one key the antidote to discontent would you be able to put it into one piece of advice the one key to an antidote to discontent yeah i guess understanding self know who you are i think is the most important thing to have that antidote to discontent do you think that a lot of us spend a lot of time avoiding understanding who we are Look, I can't really speak for other people, uh, but in general, I do know that a lot of people find it very difficult to sit with themselves, by themselves, for themselves. They usually need some distraction in the background, you know, some noise in the background. They need something happening around them. They need company. But just, just to be able to sit with self, I think, is, is an important part often describe you as an inspiring person, Gregory? (laughs) They do, actually. I kind of don't get it. I just do what I do. You know, if you can um, get a smile from someone along the way, that's a bonus. I'm going to try to condense your story, and I hope that that is not disrespectful because it is a really big story. But I want to talk about some of the themes in your book because that's what we're here to talk about. You came from a very difficult 
childhood violence and anger and, and dysfunction. You were, you know, sent to an orphanage. You've spent time in, in prison and a boy's home. And you, along the way, understandably sort of developed drug and alcohol issues. Ultimately, this led to a long period of homelessness, including a spell that you spent literally as a hermit in, in the bush with no real contacts, no no friends, no, no, no links to society really. And, you know, you wrote about that in your last book. But I guess the start point here seems to be the point where you had what you call your park bench epiphany. Could you describe that to people? Because it really does sort of, people talk about epiphanies all the time in the conversation, but I think this truly was an epiphany, wasn't it? And it's carried you to where you are today. Yeah, I I guess that depends on the definition of an epiphany. But what I can say is that that moment changed my life forever. Basically, you know, I, I... left the forest a few months earlier and I'd been hit by a car, which was a good thing because that put me in hospital and I was able to do a little bit of initial recovery in the hospital. But a couple of months after that, I found myself sitting on a park bench at the back of Tweed Heads Hospital next to the river. And next to me, I had a backpack with all the really important things for a drug addict alcoholic that was you know, a bottle of bourbon, cask of wine, you know, a good supply of drugs, marijuana, cocaine, all, all the products of a misspent disability support pension, which I'd been on from the time I left the hospital. But I was sitting there and I was thinking, you know, I'd be okay if I just had one person I could tell all my problems to. And it, that thought... Uh, was devastating because I suddenly realised that here I was sitting on a park bench age 45 with all my possessions in the whole world next to me and not one single friend. And, you know, I reflected back to when I was a child. When I was a child, I had this raging fire in my belly, you know, that passion for life. And as I sat there on that park bench, it was all that was left was just this tiny little amber that I wanted to reach in and put out. And as I thought that, I was I found myself suddenly standing there in a fog and I couldn't see past my nose. Very suddenly this fog started to recede. And as the fog receded, I became aware that I was standing in a fighting position. I, I'd been fighting my whole life. My whole life was just one constant war. I was super vigilant, I was super angry, and I carried this great big double-edged sword. And as the fog receded further, I could see all the devastation of a battlescape all around me, And but there was no one there, and the fog eventually receded to the horizon, and I couldn't see anyone to fight. And then I suddenly realised that I'd, you know, I, I'd created all this devastation, all this mess, all this all this trouble, all my problems I'd created myself, all my life, there was never anyone else to fight. I was always fighting myself. So with that realisation, you know, I made a decision that I had to change my life. I had to change the way I thought. I had to change the way that I, you know, I, um, I viewed life. 
And then all of a sudden I was sitting on the park bench again and next to me was that backpack full of drugs and alcohol and there was the first decision I had to make. And, I, you know, I got up from that park bench and I walked away and I left that backpack sitting there. I've never had another drink of alcohol. I've never had a cigarette. I've never had another drug since that day. And I can say that quite quickly. But I can promise you it was a very, very challenging time for the next few years. What I did have was a blank canvas of self that I can construct the person that I wanted to be. And that's where this book starts to come in. How important is it for for people to have an idea of, of who they want to be? That, that idea of having a, a, a blank canvas and you essentially said, this is the man I want to become. I want to leave that other person behind and I want to become that. How do people go about constructing a new identity when they're not happy with the identity they have? No, really good question. Tough one. I think the most important thing is to understand that you don't have to be the person you are if you don't like that. But at the same time, change is not a simple thing. If change was that easy, everybody would do it. It's a really common saying, yeah, but it's a true saying. If you want to change yourself, you're up for a challenge. And I mean that, whether you want, you know, whether you want to change your body shape, whether you want to, you know, change some attitudes, you know, change your, the way you respond to other people, it's all, it's all a challenge. For me, the very first thing I needed to do was to have a look at myself and see what, what was in there that was of any value. And for myself, I realised... There's only two things that I had that were of any value, and one of them were questionable. The first thing that I had of any value was my name. My mother gave me my name, and, you know, if they talk to me in a thousand years or talk about me in a thousand years, they'll always use my name. So that my name became very important. And so I'm very, you know, I don't shorten my name. My name's not Greg. It's not, you know, I don't have a name. My name is Gregory. That's it. I respect my own name. The other thing that I had that was important uh, was my word as a human being, my word as a man. And up until that point, that was trashed because I'd broken promises, I'd told lies, I'd, you know, I was uh, untrustworthy. There were a whole lot of issues there. So the very first thing I needed to do was to strengthen the value of my word. And I did that by saying to myself, I will change who I am and then committing to that and doing that and not taking a step away from that. Did that give you a sense of, I mean, self-confidence might be too big a word, but I've heard people say that if if you're lacking a lot of self-confidence, it's probably because you're often breaking promises to yourself. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely it did. By the end of the first day, I'd achieved something and I needed to, to have a look at that very small achievement that, because I'd set a goal and my goal was to strengthen the value of my word. You know, and that was only to myself at that time and it, it was only to myself for quite a long time after. But I got through that first day 
and I did what I said I was going to do, or, I, or more to the point, I did what I said I wasn't going to do. I didn't use drugs. I didn't use alcohol. I didn't tell anybody any lies or make any promises or do anything that was going to harm me. You know, so that very first day I had an achievement and I could look at that. In your book, you don't make it sound easy. You definitely show that it was a journey and a, and a long journey. But what I found so interesting, I've read a lot about the subject of happiness and, and personal growth. I've talked to a lot of people and I think there's a lot of basic principles for happiness. And remarkably, they're all through your book. The first, it would seem, after that park bench epiphany was personal responsibility. Do you think people have much of a chance without, and then personal responsibility seemed to be to you not blaming anyone else for where you were? Yeah. Uh, agency, personal agency. Yeah. I, all my life, I'd blamed other people, institutions, circumstance for my situation, for my, the way I felt. You know, in short, I was a slave to the emotions and the circumstance of others. So I needed to take responsibility for that. I needed to own my own emotions. I needed to understand that I had, yeah, like uh, I had created my situation. And that's what my epiphany told me. I was responsible for all this mess and I couldn't blame other people. So if I was responsible for the mess, I was also responsible for cleaning it up. You also talk about that next part of responsibility or about agency with a kind of real glee was the realisation that you couldn't control other people but also you didn't need to. The great freedom of, of not having to control other people anymore. Tell me a little bit about how that changed things for you. Uh, that's an amazing uh, revelation self-revelation it's like if i you know if i take responsibility for myself you know i empower myself if i allocate other people's actions and other people's thoughts and words and whatever to them and i don't take responsibility for them there's a great freedom in that because all of a sudden i'm not engaged or connected to the outcomes you know of these things i have no control over the only person that I have control over is myself. I mean, even a baby, I don't have control over a child or a baby. You know, they will cry, they will do what they want. When they're hungry, they're hungry. I, I don't have that control. So there's a great revelation for me in understanding that and allowing there's a freedom. There's also the strengthening of a conduit to be able to develop friendships because there's no expectations within those friendships, within those relationships. And I think this is especially important in intimate relationships, allowing the other person to be who they are without imposing my desires, my will, my expectations upon them. When you talk about passing judgment, I thought it was a lovely turn of phrase, passing judgment from the podium of the gutter, where you will look, look up at 
people passing you by and and judge them because I what, what was that that was a way of controlling your environment of feeling that they were the ones that were wrong and it wasn't you that was wrong that's right yes it was about um, making me feel better you know it was judgment you know judgmental attitudes upon society as a whole you know and then post epiphany you know well I'm working through all my issues and you know what this popped up and I think, oh, yeah, you know, here I am sitting on the edge of a cigarette paper, swinging my legs, thinking, you know, how great I am. And I'm, I, in reality, you know, my persona is the smallest of all. I could walk underneath the belly of a snake and not touch its skin. I was so small. You know, I was so insignificant. You say that as you began to change and as you began to you know let go of that need to control others or expect things you also say you you moved into a stage of responding not reacting that's hard for people isn't it to not react when someone says something they don't like or something happens that's unpleasant how did you get into that sort of swing of of not reacting well, that transition, I'm not saying I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm really good in that area. I think there's always work to be done in that area, especially in, in intimate relationships. There's, you know, the closer the person is to you, to you the, the, the more chance you have of a reaction rather than a response. But generally speaking, um, you know, I don't have to sort of, well, firstly, it's not taking on board other people's words, actions, behaviours or whatever. If you care about the person, it's about separating their behaviour from the person themselves. You know, they, they've got problems as well. It's understanding it. But I think a really important thing to do is if I start to feel myself getting a little bit anxious or wanting to react, breathe. Remember to breathe. Yeah, and wait for that person to finish and then take at least three deep breaths before I respond. That just gives me, firstly, it puts oxygen into my system, calms me down a little bit, and it just gives me that little bit of space between that uh, reaction and response. Would you describe yourself as a, a spiritual person? Yeah, I would. Yeah, I look, I, I'm very connected to my environment. Music to me is waking up in the morning and listening to the birds. You know, that's the best time to meditate, just listening to the birds. And realising that the birds are not just making a noise, they're actually communicating. You know, they're sending out messages all over the place. So trying to understand those messages as well. Gregory, the other part of that sort of letting go of control about what other people do or, or say, you seem to have taken it even further and, and that idea of accepting, accepting what happens. I think people really struggle with that too. And you, you, you say in the book that acceptance is not surrender because maybe that's where people confuse them. Can you explain that? Yeah, sure. Look, as a child, and this is this is one of those things that goes that go right back to my, you know, um, being locked in solitary confinement in concrete cells, or being locked under a 
in a cupboard under a staircase or something like that or being being bashed, whatever. But as a child, I would try so hard to forget yesterday. So every day I would try not to remember yesterday. And I lived in dread, so I was always trying not to look at tomorrow too far. And so I was just left contained in this little moment. And what I learned there was that if I stay in that little space of now, it's actually a really safe space and I can manage that space really well. I can manage now really well. I can't manage yesterday, I can't manage tomorrow, but I can manage now. You talk about putting the paddle in the canoe and (laughs) (laughs) what else is, what's the next part of that, putting the paddle in the canoe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, look, it's um, go with the flow, put the paddle in the canoe and enjoy the view. Why, again, why do you think that's hard for people? We we do live in a society that doesn't speak to that at all, does it? It says that's absolutely the wrong way to live. It's it's a lazy or it's a, you've got to get out there and achieve things. You've, But I don't think you're suggesting you not have goals or a vision for your life. You've, you've proved that. You had a real vision for your life. What, what's the difference? between trying to steer and control everything and and kind of letting life take you along a little bit? You asked me earlier if I was a spiritual person. Allowing life to take you where life wants to take you is a spiritual concept. When I start to interfere with my life with I want, I'm making demands on myself. I'm making demands on the direction of my life. And I can change that. One of the greatest things, decisions I ever made was to stop interfering with my own life and just allowing it to, to happen. As it, I would not be where I am today if I had kept doing what I wanted to do. Now, today I do what I need to do as opposed to what I wanted to Explain that because it sounds like a contradiction and I think it is It is a very sort of narrow bit of understanding to understand what you're talking about. You worked so hard and did so many things to change your life and yet you're talking about going with life and not letting and not interfering with it. Can you try to explain that? Before I do, I'll just clarify the definition of want and the definition of need. Yeah, I need uh, I need water to exist. Yeah, I need water. Okay, but I might want beer. I might want alcohol. Yeah. and I can substitute water for alcohol. So, and that's what created a whole lot of problems for me. I was doing what I wanted, drinking alcohol, and not what I needed, water. Now, on the on the other part of that, I made a decision not to interfere with my life very early. So what that meant was I learned to read the spiritual signs of life. For example, I'm sitting in a soup kitchen. This is in 2000, the year 2000. All the hot goss at the time was computers are the way of the future. You know, if you want to, if you want to be ahead, understand computers. Okay, and that was that was like wildfire in the in the soup kitchens. Then serendipitously, I came across a little poster and it said, 
free computer hardware course, six weeks. And I thought, oh, okay, that's right in my face. I'll do that. Yeah, so I'm following that trail. Uh, now, I didn't, you know, the day before I hadn't decided to go and look for a computer course or anything, but it was there. So I signed up to that. I did it. I hated it, but I did it. And it was a really important lesson for me because what I learned was I don't like computers, but I do like learning. And what I've learned since then is I don't have to like computers because they're an animate object. I just have to know how to use them. You're describing a sort of a level of, I guess, intuition or listening to a, a inner guidance when you, when you talk about those sort of things. What's the difference? How would you know your inner guidance was working when you were doing that computer course and you hated it? Could you not have thought this is a sign that I should not be doing this computer course? Well, there's two signs in there because I loved the concept of learning. So there's a balance even in there. There's a there's a yin and yang in there, feng shui. But again, you know, I leave that course, and you know what I, what's obsessing my head there is that I'd missed out on my education. So I follow that up just because I can. I never decided to go to university. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a goal that I'd set. It happened along the way. Mm. I never made a decision to go and work for a university. That happened along the way. I never made a decision to do an honours. That happened along the way. I never made a decision to do a PhD. That just happened along the way. It was offered. I was on the right path. Mm. And so all these things were put in my way. I didn't know that I was an expert in certain areas. That happened along the way. You know, I work globally with different organisations now. That's not something that I made a decision about. It just happened along the way. I'm on a, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a human being having a spiritual experience. I'm walking along. If it was left to me... In those very early days after the epiphany, if I had decided, I probably would have went into into business or uh, did some, you know, my pathway would be completely different. But you do talk about the importance or the power of, of having meaningful goals and you definitely had goals along the way, didn't you? Yes, I did. And often... I was given the recipe, I was provided the recipe to achieve those goals. For example, before I went into university, my, yeah, my goal was to complete the, uh, the bridging course and my goal was to have the best outcome I could. You know, so I worked hard to achieve that goal, that goal. And that was my goal. You know, if I'm going to do this, I'm going, going to do it well. So rather than trying to your goal being an outcome of I will complete this you know this course so that I may do this and and do that and 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 have another step you just your goal was simply to do well complete the course and do well okay and trust and that's a big one and trust that there'll be a doorway at the other side. That's another sort of, I guess, what I would call one of the principles of, of happiness, which you seem to have innately known at this time, was that your attitude had the power to change everything. That's something you, you changed as well. Can you explain a little bit about how attitude can change not only the way you see life but your actual, you know, the, the, the physical parts of your life? Attitude is massive. It's incredible. Attitude's magic. 
and I can change you know, I can change a whole lot of things around me just by changing my attitude. You know, it's that powerful. If my attitude is positive and you know I'm making contributions to myself and I'm engaging, people notice. And not just people, people that count notice. And it's amazing what other people can offer in the right situation. Just a really quick antidote. Uh, I was invited to be a part of an organisation. You know, I'm sitting there, you know, and I'm in with a whole lot of CEOs and these really, you know, philanthropists and others. I'm sitting there and, you know, I'm thinking, what am I doing here? You know, I don't do business. I'm, I'm an academic in a university. And anyway, one day I just said to them, look, I, I don't know why I'm here. You know, I, I don't feel I'm contributing. I don't feel I'm doing anything. You know, I think I'd be better, you know, doing something else. And the CEO of one of the organisations said, no, you're meant to be here because what I would like to do is invite you to be a part of the board to make a contribution to lived experience, to develop the concept of lived expertise in the areas that you're very proficient in. So, yeah, my attitude wasn't one of disdain or anything. It's just it was a realistic assessment of the moment of what was happening. But there was other things outside of me at play. And when I became true to that moment, those doorways opened. Do you think in a modern world when people are busy and, you know, sometimes overwhelmed by noise and social media and and all the sorts of things that can take up our time, is it hard for people to go deep and to know themselves? You spent a lot of time thinking about who you were. And I'm not going to suggest because you were at the time homeless and, and living alone that it was easier. I'm sure it wasn't. But is it hard in modern world to find that space? How, how can people find that space? Yeah, look, it is very difficult. But again, it comes back to knowing, having an understanding of your day, of what your activities are in that day, what your contributions to yourself are in that day. I think one of the really important things is to you know, put a few minutes aside each day just to reflect on yourself. You know, how are you feeling? Are you anxious? I mean, you don't have to have the answers. Just begin by identifying what's happening within yourself. If you can connect to that and if you have a desire to understand that, and you have to understand it before you can change it, okay? If you have a desire to understand that, you will find that extra 10 to 15 minutes a day that you need to change it because that's all it takes. Mm. It doesn't take a long time to self-reflect, to develop a little bit of understanding about who you are, what's happening, and then make some decisions around changing it. What happens is change is a 24-7 attitude. Yep. So when I'm going, you know, when I'm looking after the kids, when I'm going to work, when I'm cooking, when I'm cleaning, you know, when I'm down talking to the chooks or, you know, out walking in the, in the bush or whatever I'm doing, I'm changing if I make that decision to change. And when I find myself falling into my old routine, then I will. It's just about picking myself up on that and saying, no, I don't do that, do it that way anymore. I do it differently. So it's not a great investment of time. It's about consciousness 
of now and a presence of myself. What am I doing right now? It's being in the now with self. You talk about concepts that I don't know if you've read uh, someone like Joe Dispenza who talks about, you know, exactly what you're saying, that if you want to be someone else, you essentially have to change that identity. I loved you talking about your, I mean, affirmations, for, for want of a better word, of, of sitting there and saying, my name is Gregory and I don't drink alcohol. This is essentially who I am. Changing that within your own thought processes so until it became a reality. Is that what you do and what you would sort of advise people do when they want to make a change? And as you said in the beginning, it might be something as simple as, you know, getting healthy or, you know, stopping with a bad habit. Is there some value in those sort of affirmations that create a new you? Absolutely, absolutely, because it's reprogramming. It's it's reprogramming uh, my default position. It's creating new neural pathways, that, that neuroplasticity, and creating a different way of thinking. It's changing the way I think. And the other the other important thing there is uh, intervention. So. You know, if, I, if my mind starts to obsess on chocolate or lollies or, you know, going down to play the pokies or whatever, you know, and all of a sudden I don't have that control of my mind, my mind is what I found really worked with nursery rhymes. So I needed to have a have an intervention there. And that's when, um, you know, I, I would start with the basics. I don't do that anymore. You know, I do this. If that... Yeah, and that can take quite a while to be established, but Humpty Dumpty was my friend. Tell me about that. <laughs> Humpty Dumpty, uh, yeah. But once my mind, once my mind was on a track, and I and I really had lost control of what I was thinking for a while, I would just start reciting Humpty Dumpty. Yeah, you know, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, and and then linking Humpty Dumpty. To the origin of the of the nursery rhyme, King James II, you know, who ruled all of England and you know put too much taxes out, he was knocked off his throne, and all of his you know men couldn't put him back up there the way he was because Cromwell was there. You know, so it's it's having that other adventure. It's it, it's venturing into the origins. For me, it was venturing, uh, changing the what, changing what's going on in my head. You know, so different people, it's different things. You know, it might be nip one, pearl one. Uh, how do you create this pattern or how do you do that? Are you talking about trying to change the that dialogue in your head that might be saying you have to do this or you can't do this? So finding a way to have a circuit breaker. So using a nursery rhyme as a circuit breaker to stop that damaging old thought process. Yes, absolutely, absolutely, yes, that early invention. Take away those, yeah, circuit break is a good way of describing it. Gregory, um, one of your other strengths, it would seem, in the the book or something you realised, part of your your change and one of those other principles, I think, of greater happiness is the idea of appreciation and gratitude. And I know people hear about gratitude and they want to... uh, you know, they think I've heard so much about gratitude. How can I be grateful when, you know, I don't have what I want or I'm I'm in this terrible situation or my life isn't isn't where I want it to be? What did appreciation or, or gratitude do to change your circumstances? Well, it was massive. 
I mean, I talked about that first day, you know, when I was able to get through that first day and, and keep my word to myself and, and the importance of that, you know, and there's a gratitude in there as well. You know, I was so grateful that I was to myself that I was able to do that. Mm. Today, gratitude's everything. You know, I have a meal. You know, I'm grateful for the for the meal that I have. I'm grateful that I don't have to go out and hunt and kill it. Or I have to grow it. You know, I can just go to a supermarket and exchange some currency for some food. See, that's perhaps a little bit deep, but I'm a sociologist, so I understand the history of where we came from and the struggles that we've had and the struggles we don't have today. Yeah, you know, I'm grateful for my health. I mean, I should have been dead a long time ago. I'm grateful for the recognition and the respect that I have today. If my life had have continued the way it was, I would have, there would be no respect for me. I mean, I'm very grateful. Gratitude's a very personal thing as well. We look at it very, uh, very differently, I guess. But I'm grateful for the, the presence of the people in my life. They mean a lot to me. How does it change things? What's the the root of it? Obviously, people understand that if you're grateful for things, you're in a sort of in a good feeling place. But how does it start to alter your your direction when you start being grateful for what you have? Um, if I'm resenting what I have, or if I'm wanting, or if I'm making demands of the universe for more, then I'm not in a good space. You know, I'm unhappy. You know, I'm very unhappy. If I'm grateful for the little bit that I do have, all of a sudden I'm, I become, my attitude changes, I become happy. And more often than not, I get more because, because I have a positive attitude, because my attitude's healthy. You know, for example, in a soup kitchen, if you're sitting there and you're mumbling and complaining about the food, nobody's going to come up to you and say, would you like a little bit more? If I'm sitting there and, you know, no matter what the food tastes like, if I'm sitting there and I'm enjoying the food and I'm sort of putting out a good vibe, they'll come up and say, would you like some more? I mean, that's a simplistic example, but it's very true for everything. It's very true with friends as well. If I'm whinging and complaining and mumbling and groaning and resentful all the time, people don't want to be around me. But if I'm happy and I'm enjoying the moment, enjoying what I'm doing, enjoying the company of others, people are attracted to that. They want to be your friend. Mm -hmm. Healthy people want to be your friend. If I'm miserable, miserable people want to come near me to enjoy my misery and share their misery with me. Mm. That's true. <laughs> what did they say? Misery loves company. Well, it does. <laughs> I was asked once, if I uh, just recently actually, if I ever suffered from depression. Mm. I have never, ever in my entire life suffered from depression. Mm. I've always enjoyed my depression. It's given me reason to be angry, to be resentful, to be rude, to be a recluse, to hide for it, to, you know, it's always given me an excuse. Mm. And I, I mean, we all get depressed. We all have our moments. In listening to this podcast, you know, there's probably many people who are maybe just looking to be a little bit more satisfied or to solve some issues in their life. But what do you say to people who are unwell? 
And I mean, it's not like you don't have experience in this yourself. I mean, you, as well as obviously the problems with addiction, they were covering up a, a post-traumatic stress. So you have a very uh, real understanding of, of major mental health issues. Do you believe that even people who are, are very unwell, who have real struggles with things like depression or anxiety or, or post-traumatic stress or any number of the issues that people can have, can find a, a way out? Yeah, I do think they can. I do think they can. And again, I'm not saying I'm not suggesting for one moment that it's easy. I think the most important thing is to find something worthwhile about yourself, whatever that is. And the question I think that a person should ask themselves is: Do they want to be like they are? Or do they want to change? And this is the paradox here. If they're happy being like they are, then they don't need to change. If they're unhappy being like they are, then they make a decision to change. And it's important to make to identify and make that decision. Because without a, an implicit or explicit decision to actually make the change, it becomes very difficult. It sort of washes away into nothing. But it's just finding one little thing that you like or one little thing that you enjoy and you're happy in. It could be just a a podcast. It could be a TV program. It could be just watching a baby or listening to a baby laugh, something that will put a smile on your face just for a moment. Mm. If you can do that, then you can change who you are. I think you said if you could change the little parts of yourself one at a time, like you're suggesting, finding one thing, then you could eventually change all of you. Yeah, but it does start with the little things because you can't change the big things all at once. Look, one of the things I used to, I sit there and I look at a brick wall and I'd look at the brick wall and a brick wall is an amazing structure. And people, when they look at brick walls, see a brick, see all the bricks. What I see is all the mortar holding the bricks in place. And it's those little bits that make that big bit real. So I had to go and look at myself and identify all those little things before I could start to identify the big things. You also talk about, I mean, talking about mortar, and and this is something I say to my uh, kids all the time, good emotional or spiritual or mental health needs needs a sort of a structure. You need a structure. And you do talk about the importance of that. It's not a big part of your book, but you say you exercise and you eat well and you try to sort of pace yourself so you're not living in a stressed world. Is that an important plank, I guess, in your structure? That's a, there's a whole book there. There's another book just on that. That's how important it is. You know, it's like I had some life's a funny thing sometimes. Very early in my recovery and I was walking around the streets, I was still homeless, you know, um, dressing out of uh, Vinnie's Boutique. And I'm walking along there and there's, I'm walking up and there's this gentleman. He, he's an elderly gentleman to me at the time. And he had this vest. Uh, it was actually a, an Angora vest over his hand. And he was walking along and he just walked straight up to me 
and he said, I've been keeping this for you. And he gave it to me. I didn't know him from a bar of soap. And I'm looking at him, I'm thinking, what's going on? He said, I always also have a message for you. He said, it's all about the balance and the pace of life. And then he walked off. And I'm standing there, I'm looking at this absolute, I've still got it today, an absolutely beautiful vest. I mean, yeah, this is of a, incredible quality. And this piece of information, I'm thinking, what do I do with this? And it has turned out to be one of the really bedstone pieces of information that I've gleaned over the years, the balance and pace of know what I can do in a day, mm. have that work-life balance, provide time for And that we go back to that, you know, that few minutes where I look at myself. Provide that time for myself, for self-reflection. Provide that time for my family. And, I mean, I, I have a one-year-old son now, so it's it's really it's busy. important for I me. Imagine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, busy's good, you know. But so is sleep. So is time out for meals. You know, I talk about the importance of sitting around the dinner table. That is a really important part of a day, of that balance and pace. Because sitting around that dinner table is the, you know, that's the catch-up time for the family. That's when we tell our stories, we tell the news, you know, what's coming up, what's happened and all this. It's a really, we don't do that in modern society. What are the most common mistakes people make? you know, in failing to live the life they want to want to live? Uh, forgetting to place themselves in the centre. Yeah. They're so busy outside of themselves they forget to actually allocate that time for themselves, that balance for themselves. If I do that, if I'm healthy of mind, if I'm healthy of body, and if I'm healthy of spirit, I can take on most challenges. The principle here is that I have to exercise my mind, my body, my spirit. Mm. So I have to allocate that time to do it. If I want to be the best person I can be in any situation, I need to allocate that time to self. Mm. So it's like an athlete. Okay, If I'm really good in this area, I need to do my exercises, mind, body and spirit. Do people seek your counsel a lot these days? Yeah, they do <laughs> every day, uh, every day. Yeah, uh, and not just people. I mean, you know, um, councils, governments, agencies, organisations. I was going to say, did you ever imagine that you would be living this life? And I know you say you didn't plan to be on these, do these jobs, be an academic, or be on these boards. But I feel like, in some way. You did plan this because you decided back there on that park bench the type of person you wanted to be. You know what I wanted to be? The best person I could be. Nothing more, nothing less. Just the best person I could be. And I do that really simply just by being the best person I can each day. I don't have to be the best person tomorrow or the day, or the day after, just today. If I'm the best person I can be today, sometimes I fall short. But then, you know, I take those couple of moments out to reflect on my day. And I think to myself, well, I could have done that better. Or I might think, I was a little bit rude to that person. I really need to 
go and apologize for that. And I will do that as soon as I can. And more often than not, that's my fiance, Catherine. I, I need to apologize for her because I've said something that I never thought about, you know, and that's, that's intimate relationships. But at the same time, that's your testing ground right there. It sure is. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and from that I learn. It's interesting that you set yourself a goal to just be the best person you can be each day and through that you've achieved some incredible, incredible things. We're, we're probably running close to time, Gregory, but I just wanted to say thank you so much. I really loved your book. It's called Better Than Happiness, The True Antidote to Discontent. It tells people about in more detail about your remarkable story, and it really is a remarkable story. But what I loved about it as just an avid reader of, you know, the principles of happiness is that you somehow have gleaned all of these uh, or knew these innately and you, you grew into them over the years that you decided to turn your life around. I think you really are inspiring, whether you believe it or not. So maybe you can just leave us with a final bit of wisdom. If there were three things people could do from today or tomorrow, if they can't get started today, that would help them become the person they want to be, what would you say they should prioritise? Which three things? I think be kind to someone every day, even if you don't want to be. Just be kind to someone. You know, and it's even better if they don't know it, yeah? if it's only just between you, just for yourself, because that's a very powerful thing. Mm-hmm. I think also be kind to yourself. Be bold enough to be honest with yourself and explore your limitations. And most of all, enjoy your day. It's the only one you've got. Enjoy it. Yeah, life is the most valuable possession any of us have. Make it an adventure. It's too easy to be miserable. I love that. I love that. I'm going to take that into my day today. Absolutely, Gregory. Thank you so much for your time and best of luck with whatever next adventure comes your way. I'm sure it'll be interesting to see and probably part of next book, book three. I don't know. I'll, I'll, um, might put a bit of space between this one and the next one. <laughs> All right. Thank you.